If you've been to other classes, I've started pretty much all of them with a history story. Uh, today, I'm not going to really do that, or I'm going to go back not very far in history to pretty recently. You know, the, uh, the summer where, you know, the, the thing happened. That's said out not too long ago. You know, you know which one I'm talking about in the 2020, that thing. So um, anyway, uh, it was the summer of 2020. As, as some of you know, I used to be a, uh, a school teacher. And so a lot of schools were debating on whether or not to uh, reopen, to restart, uh, especially to in-person learning in the fall of 2020. Uh, and so uh, I was uh, looking at kind of the, the the overall climate, looking at kind of the different uh, debates that were going on, in, uh, especially in Utah, being a teacher here in Utah. And I, I read an article in, in the Salt Lake Tribune about uh, that was one, one teacher, was part of a teacher's union that didn't really want students to go back to in-person learning in the fall. Um, so uh, I, was, I was another teacher, and I read that, and I was like, ah, you know, I, I, I had sincere thoughts that you know, the kids were, were losing a lot of learning. There was a lot of like social things as well that they were missing. And so I felt pretty strongly that kids should be able to go back to school. Um, and our school, uh, which uh, I was teaching sixth grade at, uh, I thought we had a good plan to go in place. You know, we're gonna require kids to have masks, do temperature checks, all sorts of things like that. And so I was like, okay, I believe that we can do this well. Um, and I read this article in the Tribune saying, no, we shouldn't. And so because of that, I decided to write a little uh, uh, piece that I sent into the, the Salt Lake Tribune uh, that basically talked about how I thought it was good for kids to go back into the classroom. So, uh, you know, and understanding that reasonable people can disagree with things, I still thought it was important that people from Utah got that different perspective and didn't think all teachers thought that we shouldn't go back to in-person learning. So I wrote the, uh, the guest opinion piece and I sent it into the paper and they thought it was well enough written, and so they, they, they put it in there, and then including on the internet, where, you know, the, the most pleasantest of, uh, of discourse can be found. Um, uh, and so as you, can, uh, as you can imagine, the type of, uh, of, of responses that I received from this in the, the comment section, uh, which I was stupid enough to go look at because, I don't know, I just... I just wanted to see. <laughs> but uh, some of them uh, stated quite bluntly how misguided and naive I was. Some others uh, accused my rhetoric as deadly. Some claimed that I was the kind of teacher that like messed up my students. Um, there was even one person that said I should uh, put myself out on a cliff and jump off. So that was, uh, that was interesting. Um, but anyway, uh, whenever you put yourself uh, out there and express opinions of any sort, especially in our uh, in our, our age where anything could be read and uh, anyone can comment on it in a uh, semi-anonymous way, there's, there's going to be things that you hear that come back from that. I didn't experience any sort of persecution or professional consequences for uh, the things that I wrote, but still kind of having my name and what I was talking about subject to that kind of, uh, uh, like, I don't know, written internet abuse, I guess, like that's not the most pleasant feeling. You know, seemingly whenever we open our mouths in public, we automatically open ourselves up to those things we're talking about when we're talking about the fear of man, the key areas of exposure, rejection, and harm that all come from uh, 
uh, the fear of man. And so one of the reasons why the fear of man, which is our topic for, uh, for our series that we've been going with me and, uh, and Zach, uh, is that it's, it's really difficult to reconcile that uh, we, we want to be in a good relationship with other people. And I think that's why this is a, this is a big issue, right? We desire to be in community with others. We desire to have, to have friends, to have people that we can rely on. And so when, we are, uh, when we're exposed, rejected, and harmed by others, we realize that those are real people whom we want to be in community with. And so that's kind of our theme today. So how should the fear of God overwhelm our fear of man, specifically in the area of relationships, in the area of friendships with people around us? So I'll start by kind of giving an introduction to that uh, and talking about uh, relationships. And then I'll discuss how we show the fear of God in our relationships with our enemies. Uh, and then the fear of God in relationships with our non-Christian neighbors. And we'll see how far I get with that today. And then we'll kind of, fortunately, we can keep floating over into next week. So if you come back next week, you'll get to hear about how uh, the fear of God can be strengthened in us by our community with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the importance of being attached to a local church so that the fear of God can cannot really be, be around us in regards to other people. So desiring friends and having unity with others is absolutely a godly desire, right? God created us for community. When he made the world, he saw Adam and said it wasn't good for man to be alone. We're meant to be with others. The problem with this is that when we take our, that God-ordained desire for community and twist it around until it becomes self-serving and misordered, like all sins are, and so when God gets shifted from his proper place as the Lord of all, and we put people up there on a pedestal saying that we should prioritize uh, what, how people look at us, well, that's sinful and that's idolatry. When, uh, when, we, kind of, when we try to uh, be nice or be liked for its own sake instead of glorifying God, then we're sinning. So the two greatest commandments are what? Love. That, love and love. Great, yes, love God and love others, right? Those are the two greatest commandments, right? And our desire from love others should come out of our desire to love God first. We love other people because we love God more. And because we love God, we're willing to love people the way that God loves them. Um, and like, uh, like Pastor Lucas talked about this morning, I mean, how did God love his people, right? He died for us while we were enemies, while we were still sinners. He suffered the ultimate exposure, rejection, and harm on our behalf. So naturally, we should have that motivation to do the same for other people, right? Kind of along that vein, it's important to realize that when dealing with other people, uh, our call is to love others and not just simply to be nice to them. You know, love does not necessarily equal nice. I know that this is something that I've had to kind of go through as, as a teacher, and I'm sure parents out there can, can relate to this, right? When you love your kid, well, that's a lot different than being just simply nice to them. When we love other people, we're not just being nice. I had to learn this in the classroom, you know, like I had like, you know, kids that would, believe it or not, they'd misbehave. Right? And you can't just be nice to a kid that's going to say, oh, sorry, like, oh, let's be better next time. Right? That, doesn't, that doesn't really work out with like, actually loving the kid and making them and molding them and try to push them towards being, being better. Right? I remember I, I, had, I had one student uh, in class that I, that I caught cheating. He was copying some of his homework assignments from someone else. 
right? And so maybe the nice thing to do would be like, oh, don't do that again, right? But that wouldn't be loving. And so I like said, hey, like, this is not cool. I called, I, I talked to his parents. Uh, I sent him down to our director's office. He ended up getting, uh, getting suspended. He got a zero on that assignment. But his parents were, were happy that, that I found out and that I, can, that I was able to, we went through this so that he learned and got better. That's what loving is. It's helping people learn, not just being simply nice. And that's what the fear of man might do to us. The fear of man might say, okay, I'll just be nice to someone. But in the fear of God, that means that we love them, not just be nice. You see, love is about caring for each other's souls, not simply affirming what the other person thinks or feels about themselves. Love is doing what might be painful in the short run for the sake of what is good and better in the long run. Right? Did God give us the law so we can keep on sinning? No. Right? Did Christ come and die so we'd remain mired in our sin that's leading us to hell without him? No. Christ died so that all who believe in him can be saved and brought into that right relationship with him, that have changed hearts, that want to have love towards others. And that's love. Not simply saying, you be you, or you be spe you're special, like just the way you are, or uh, to quote Shakespeare, uh, know thyself and to thine own self be true. That's a lot what the modern world wants to say, but that's not love. In his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, which we've referenced a few different times on this course by Ed Welsh, uh, he's got some useful questions for us to think about this in the context of our relationships and actions towards other people. So first of all, he asks, what do you need? You know, the first thing that usually pops into people's heads when we're talking about what we need, right? Maybe biological necessities. But when uh, we actually think about what we need, maybe there's, there's uh, people in your life whose, whose approval that you crave. Maybe you feel like you need their approval. And often what we feel like we need, that's what controls us, because that controls our actions. And that becomes our dominating principle, becomes kind of what uh, kind of replaces where God should be in our life with, that, uh, with, with them and pleasing them. And that's idolatry, as we've talked about. So what controls you? Or who, what do you put your trust in? Right? Do you put your trust, and you can think about this in your own context, is there someone in your life whose approval that you crave so much that you value what they think of you above what God thinks of you? So in regards to our relationships with others, the fear of man plays out differently depending on those different categories that we have. Um, and so kind of these are the two major categories that we're breaking it up into is first looking at uh, the, the fear of man or relationships with non-Christians, so unbelievers, and then relationships with believers because those are a big distinction there. And then I'm going to go on the sub point of when we're talking about non-believers today, we're going to look at how uh, our relationships with people that we'd consider enemies or, or frenemies, as, as it might be at some points in time, as Pastor Lucas again talks about today, um, and then kind of looking at people that we wouldn't consider our, uh, our enemies, but people that are, that are around in our lives, whether at work, school, uh, or just our geographic neighbors as well. <clears throat> okay, and so... Loving your enemies is that radical thing that God wants from us when other moral systems say that it's going to be ridiculous. 
And so there's no other really like, there's really no other ethical system that has that biblical ethic as, as our, our text says or our, our lesson today, right? There's no other ethical system that says not just love people that are good to you or not just love and treat people well to get something from them, but to love people that are not going to be good to you, to love our enemies. And so Christians are just, are just called to be different than every other ethical system. I remember so... Um, in Chapman Elementary School in Connecticut, where I grew up and why I went to school as a little one, we had, a, um, we had posters kind of up around in our, in our school. And many of them, you know, had like, you know, this is the golden rule in like for Christianity. And this is the golden rule in Islam. And this is the golden rule for Buddhism. And like kind of listed it out kind of with the idea being like, oh, look, like all religions say the same thing of loving, loving other people. And that's what we should do. Well, I mean, that's just not really true. You see, other religions want you sure to like, maybe treat others with respect, but it doesn't talk about uh, what you should do to people that don't treat you well. Right? There's no expectation of treating the mean people with love. There's no expectation that if someone is persecuting you, you should pray for them. You know, that's not the standard set up by all the religions out there. That's a purely Christian concept that in many cultures uh, is considered weak. And, and, and silly, because what Jesus says is radical. And so our passage today specifically talked about that, and Jesus also talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And so I'll read that, that passage here. Uh, it says, you have heard, Jesus said, this is Matthew 5, 43 to 48, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that really, like, it really is just kind of ridiculous. What he's saying is that like everyone can treat others well if they treat us well. It doesn't make us any more special um, because, because others just kind of do the same. You see, God wants us to go beyond that, to love the people that are challenging to love. And we can even think about the context that Jesus is talking here, right? He's talking to a mixed group, probably, of Jews and Gentiles, but people that are, are all kind of suffering uh, under, under the thumb of Rome during this time. Right? Like literally like right down the street probably from, from, from where Jesus is giving a, a Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, like there's Roman soldiers that are patrolling the area. Their enemies are right there. And for the context of a lot of these people, they can immediately think, oh, those are our enemies? And that's who we're supposed to treat well? Like we're supposed to go and, uh, and sacrifice and turn the other cheek to those people? I mean, literally like a little bit more than 30 years after Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, like the, the Jewish people are gonna have a revolt against their enemies. So there's, there's political tension at this time, and yet Jesus still says, love your enemies. And the standard practice in war is to dehumanize the other, the enemy, to make it easier to fight them. And that's what governments have often sought to do. If you've ever uh, seen a lot of propaganda posters that we had in the United States during World War II, there were many posters that seek to look at the Japanese and the Germans as subhuman because it's a lot easier to fight someone that is like, that looks like someone else, that looks like your enemy. But those are the people that Jesus calls us to love. 
the challenge that's there. Jesus says to love them. Right? I do want to clarify before we go, go further that loving someone who treats you poorly isn't just about like checking a box and kind of smiling at them as they, they mistreat you. Loving goes deeper than that. Um, as, as we learned our message today, loving is at the heart. Right? It doesn't seek to retaliate to wrongs, but it might seek justice. If someone wrongs you, calling for justice is a good response that can come out of the heart. God made us to see justice as a goal, and when someone breaks the law, they may deserve just punishment. Right? As my student in class deserve a just punishment, a just consequence for his actions, that was love in that situation. And so, but when we love our enemies, the goal of that justice is to bring them around, is rehabilitation, is to bring them back into that right relationship with God. It's a heart thing. It's not just checking a box and saying, yep, okay, yeah, I forgive you, I did this, blah, 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 right, check, check, check. That's not it, right? It's about a changed heart when we're looking at how we... Uh, how we treat our enemies. And one of my favorite books of all time is right here, uh, Unbroken. Has anyone read this? Oh, sweet, yeah. Or they, they did make a movie out of it. However, not just saying this as a total book snob, because I am a total book snob, <laughs> but the book is vastly superior to the movie. Yes, and I see people that have read it are like, yup, yup, exactly, right? So read it, it's great. But um, in Unbroken, it's this really like crazy epic story. You see, I couldn't help, you know, having a history story at least, right? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, in the book Unbroken, it's a ridiculous story of this guy named Louis Zamperini. He was a, uh, an Olympic runner. Uh, he, like, met Hitler during the Olympics. Crazy thing. Anyway, uh, he, he's an Olympic runner uh, and then eventually uh, joins the U.S. military during, uh, during World War II. Fights in the Pacific Theater there. Um, he gets shot down. Uh, in his plane over the Pacific. He spends 47 days aboard a raft in the middle of the ocean, drifting more than 2,000 miles through shark-infested waters. It's really one of the most, like, it's crazier than fiction kind of stories that you can find out there. But eventually he's captured by the Japanese, brought to a Japanese prison camp, um, and there, uh, he, as he, because he was an Olympian, he was subject to extra abuse, uh, especially from this guy who singled him out for this, named uh, Mutsuhiro Watanabe, uh, because Watanabe saw Zamperini and was like, he looked for every single excuse that he had to go and punish Zamperini, um, and, uh, and he did, subjected him to pretty, pretty nasty stuff. Read the book if you want to hear all about that. But uh, when uh, eventually the, the, the camp was, um, was freed by, by the allies coming in, and uh, Louis got to go back to his family in California. And after years of alcohol, alcoholism there and suffering from PTSD, Zamperini was converted during a Billy Graham evangelistic event. And so he became a Christian. And this brought him a completely new lens on life and changed the way that he looked at, uh, looked at things. The change that Jesus brought inside of him led him to this crazy desire to return to Japan and to forgive his captors, including Watanabe, despite all of the things that he did to Zamperini. And so he wrote this letter uh, to, to his torturer, to Watanabe, that said this, to Muchuhira Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life has become a nightmare, or became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. 
The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Suguma Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harikari, which was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you. I also forgave you, right? And now would hope that you would also become a Christian. I mean, that's an amazing thing. That kind of a love for others can only come from that heart change that God brings. And so what does this have to do with that category, under, under that category of fear of man? Well, if we look at this through our, our, uh, that lens of exposure, rejection, and harm, we have people that hate us. We definitely can feel exposed, right? Our enemies are those most likely to use our weaknesses that they may know against us. So we feel like who we are is out there and it's dangerous, right? When we love our enemies, it opens us up to this kind of danger and become vulnerable and can be rejected and despised even through our acts of love. I mean, think about a biblical example of David and his son Absalom, where Absalom had murdered uh, Absalom's brother um, and was sent away from the king for a long time. But David's heart was soft to his son. Uh, and even though Absalom had done wrong, David forgave him and brought him back to the court. Um, and while admittedly, you know, David, if you read the, the, the story in 2 Samuel 13 through 19, you know, David definitely makes some, some unwise decisions here. But in his love and forgiveness to his son led him to this significant harm. Absalom would later stage a coup against David, um, and David was forced to flee Jerusalem and flee his kingdom for a time as Absalom took over. Loving our enemies can be painful, and we can experience all sorts of that exposure, rejection, and harm. But God still calls us to it. So we should respond with, as, as we've been talking about through this whole course, with humility, with obedience, and with prayer. And so to truly love our enemies, we need to give up our own right to revenge, you know, our perceived right to revenge. We need to trust in God's justice and not just our own and not our own strength. Loving our enemies is about sacrificing kind of what we deserve for other people because that's what the gospel is. We're getting what we don't deserve. And so we should show that to others. So how and why or why should we do this, right? We see this type of radical love that changes people's minds, right? We should love our neighbor because we love God more, because we fear God more. We know that we're serving a great God, and this has a massive impact and can have a massive impact on the world around us. So when Christians were persecuted throughout the Roman Empire in the first few centuries, I mean, what was their response? Right? They didn't respond with hate and rebellion. Instead, they responded with love. If we think to the example uh, in Acts 16, when Paul and Cyrus were put, or Silas, were put in a prison in Philippi, right? They were, uh, there was an earthquake. They were, they were able to, to, to get free. And then how did they respond to the jailer who's, you know, a jailer there with them is about to kill himself because he, he feared that, that he would be punished uh, and would lose honor for his prisoners escaping. A jailer is not usually someone, you, you know, your personal jailer is not someone that you would have a lot of respect and love for. But instead, Paul and, Paul and Silas called out to him and said, no, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And because of that action, because of that love, the jailer was converted and God worked in him. So I imagine that most prisoners would lo love their jailer so much to want to help him when they had an opportunity to run away. So in the same way, we shouldn't have a fear of man when it comes to those around us that don't treat us well, specifically our enemies. 
when the world says, yes, pay them back for what they did to you, Christians should respond with love. We ought to love them as Christ loved us. Remember, we are enemies of God before our conversion. So Romans 5.10 says that if, for, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We were once enemies of God, yet he loved us so much to die for us and to bring us into a good relationship with him. And so the fear of God should so overwhelm our feelings, thoughts, and actions so that we can really love our enemies who don't love us. And then this should radically change people's perceptions of you and will greatly impact the world for Christ. And so you'll have to come back next week to hear about the other relationships with our fear, our fear of God, uh, helping us in our relationships with our neighbors, uh, both Christian and non-Christian. So I hope you join me then next week.